Hello, I'm Rabbi Ed Bernstein. Welcome to the My Teacher Podcast, a celebration of the people who shape our lives. I'm recording this on Sunday, April 3rd, 2022. I just learned last night of the death of Rabbi Everett Gendler at the age of 93. Rabbi Everett Gendler was an American rabbi known for his involvement in progressive causes, including the civil rights movement. He has also been widely referred to as the founder of the Jewish environmental movement. About ten years ago at the Rabbinical Assembly Convention in Atlanta, I had occasion to meet Rabbi Gendler for the first time, and we recorded a conversation about Jewish environmentalism. At the time, I was serving as spiritual leader of Temple Torah, now Temple Torat Emet, of Boynton Beach, Florida. I was experimenting with podcasting and recorded interviews with various thought leaders that were then published on Temple Torah's podcast. That feed is no longer online. However, I recovered and restored the audio of my conversation with Rabbi Gendler that I am pleased to present here. Please note that we recorded the conversation in a public area in a hotel, so there is some light background noise. However, the content of the interview is audible. A decade after this conversation, the need to address the climate crisis and our dependence on fossil fuels has never been more pressing. Rabbi Gendler spoke with a prophetic voice, and since this interview, I'm pleased to count him as one of my teachers. Here is my May 2012 conversation with Rabbi Everett Gendler. May his memory be for a blessing. So this is Rabbi Ed Bernstein from Temple Torah. This is the Temple Torah podcast. I'm podcasting from the Rabbinical Assembly Annual Convention in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm very honored to be sitting with one of the uh, esteemed elder statesmen of our Mm -hmm. movement, uh, Rabbi Everett Gendler from Great Barrington, Massachusetts. He has been an activist for many years in addition to serving in the congregational world, he's, he's been an uh, activist in the civil rights movement and uh, all kinds of important social causes. And uh, uh, Rabbi Gendler, it's wonderful to have you here. Uh, as you know, one thing I'm personally interested in is uh, the nexus between Jewish values and mm-hmm. the environment. Mm-hmm. And this is something that I know you've, you've been an er- early advocate on. You've really been ahead of the curve Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell me a bit about how you got involved in environmental issues and what what brought you down that path? Mm. Yeah, it's, it, it, you know, at, at the deepest level, I would have to ponder a while. And uh, blank airtime is, I think, not highly esteemed. So, but let, let me just say that I... I had certain birthright advantages. I was born in a small Iowa farm town, population eh, 4,800, 4,800, maybe 5,000. 
And um, our house was about a block and a half from um, the railroad bridge. And if you walk down under that railroad bridge, then cornfields began. And I would guess they went about a... 150 miles before St. Joseph, Missouri interrupted them. So I, um, part of the blessedness of uh, my unlikely birthplace as a future rabbi, part of the blessing was I was surrounded by what we call nature. And this really meant that Later on, when I began to discover Jewish texts and when I would read passages from Psalms, I suddenly realized that uh, these were compositions that emerged not from the study, not from the library, but uh, from David's exposure as a shepherd, from uh, others wandering in the fields. So um, I, I think internally I was prepared to make connections that weren't always obvious to people from different surroundings. So yes, er, so early on um, for me, Judaism and nature were intimately linked and I remember uh, uh, Alan Mintz and Jim Sleeper put out in 1971 a volume called The New Jews. Mm -hmm. And uh, they asked different people for things. And I did an essay called On the Judaism of Nature. You know, a lot of essays on the nature of Judaism. No, 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 no. And am I, by the, on the Judaism of Nature, I really meant that. Um, how Judaism related to nature. Now, obviously, from that, as issues of preserving the environment and preserving the natural heritage for future generations and for ourselves came to the fore, um, I, I couldn't um, advocate, um, oh, yes, let me take advantage of nature, but... Um, please excuse me from any responsibility for its proper treatment and preservation. So from that, of course, I, uh, I like you, was, became environmentally involved. Yeah. So if what for you, if you could pinpoint one seminal classical Jewish text, what speaks to you the most from our tradition mm. in terms mm. of calling us to... Yeah, uh, probably... You know, probably the the midrash in which um, God takes primordial Adam and Eve and uh, shows them the garden and says, "Hey, kids, look! Is this beautiful? I've created it for its intrinsic value. I've created it for you to enjoy. Enjoy." appreciate and preserve it because if you corrupt it, if you pollute it, there will be no one to repair it after you. 
So that, I would say, is the um, earliest call to environmental activism. It's a very gentle call. It's more an invitation than a summons. It's a kind of beckoning. It's not pointing the finger. And uh, it, it, it remains for me, um, you know, beautiful, one of the primal texts, along with Isaiah's insistence that lo tohu la shevet the divine did not create the world to be a desolate chaos. He created it to be habitable. So the alignment with this sense of divine purpose, that, that's been another of the controlling texts, the mm -hmm. guidelines. Yeah. In my own studies, I found that there are different schools of thought with respect to environmental advocacy. One says that all living creatures are equal, and another is that human beings are first among equals, and, and that we're tasked with safeguarding the, the earth, mm -hmm. but, but that in some sense uh, the, the earth is, is ours. Mm -hmm. uh, so w w where would you fall on that spectrum? Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, the, I mean the, the deep creationists, uh, they, they have a case. And certainly, I'll tell you, it, it, it's pretty clear from Job where God exults over the untamed creatures that the value of creation is beyond its use or its enjoyability for humans. On the other hand, um, I, I, I suppose you could you could condemn me as a speciesist. Now, I uh, I've been a vegetarian for more than fifty years, and I really I really try to reduce the pain of all sentient creatures. And I think all have some claim on us. I do think that insofar as the whole arc of evolution has been toward higher degrees of awareness and more intensity of organization and complexity, I think there our, uh, our nervous systems do give us both special opportunities and special responsibilities. So I guess I would say, look, um, I think the original dietary charter of early Genesis holds and... Uh, we should share amicably with other creatures the beauties of this planet. At the same time, um, I, I, I recognize, or maybe I'm simply blinded by, the sense that there are special human capacities and that we shouldn't apologize for them, we shouldn't uh, conceal 
the illumination accorded us, but uh, should rejoice in it always with consideration and with compassion. In uh, yeah. contemporary dialogue, there's heated debate now over global warming, or I should oh. say, I should say, there's scientific consensus for the most part on global warming, but in popular American culture, there it, it is less settled. As someone who advocates for environmental issues, how can we break through that? And I and I'm sharing my own bias here because I believe that global warming is real and it's human caused because I have I trust the scientific mm -hmm. data and yet uh, people seem to be scared of the implications that if they own up to the fact that our use of petroleum and our plundering of the earth leads oh, to oh. leads to that then we're going to take away their ability to enjoy the world. Based on your experience, how can we frame this issue in, in positive ways, in religious ways that speak to hearts and minds of mm, people? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I think that, that the, 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 the blessing and the curse of the discover of petroleum back in the, what was it, the 1880s in Pennsylvania? Mm -hmm. huh. When I was growing up, the big, the big brand in Iowa, Quaker State Motor Oil, you know. Um, this concentration of energy in an easily available form represented such a, a huge boost to human capacity for uh, activity and production, um, we we understandably were were quite mesmerized by it, fascinated, uh, relieved, and uh, couldn't get enough of it. The um, I think what we have to do is ask, first of all, um, are there ways in which the easy, cheap availability of stuff has actually reduced our appreciation of individual objects? Uh, you know, if you have uh, three jackets each one will have a, a kind of special character, and you'll appreciate it. If you have six or seven, you pay less attention. So it seems to me that where we, where we probably want to begin is by helping people become more aware of, more sensitive to what they see, appreciate, enjoy from their surroundings. And if we can help all of us focus on that, I think what we're going to, to realize suddenly is that some of what we thought was abundance is in fact distraction.
and it, it's it's cutting us off from things we really used to love and cherish. I mean, oh, everybody, most, not everybody, many people have periodic longings for a simpler age, an easier age, um, when things weren't so complex. Um, I think we should follow up those stirrings, look critically at what excess has produced. I mean, just piles of trash and garbage. I mean, the dollar stores. And, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, with all the, the petrol energy, it, there is still... And the way the communities sw- are designed now. You, you can't... Communities are not designed where there's mixed zoning with with houses and a post office and a bank and Ah. grocery store on the block. Um, That's how I grew up. I grew up in an urban area, but now living in suburbia, there's very little in walking distance. We rely on the car for everything we we do. Yeah, Yeah. and, uh, you know, we, we... I mean, zoning is a delicate issue because sometimes, you know, to overturn zoning laws just open, opens places up to terrible commercial exploitation and the horrible strip mall phenomenon. But I think if we can just help people reestablish contact with the, the basic sources of our lives uh, and, and help kids... And parents recapture the the wonder of the seed, yeah. you know, to have taken something as marvelous and mysterious as planting and the germination of seed, and turn it over to ten thousand acre machines. Right. Terrible human deprivation. Well, you remind me of the work of Richard Lo- Love and his his uh, work Last Child in the Woods in which he says that it's become uh, almost a condition of our being now that, that children don't know how to play outside. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. And, and there's, there's even a phobia of, oh, of yeah. going outside. So I, I think really you know, <laughs> if, we're, if we're going to mobilize afresh and help people sustain this over decades... I mean, it can't be just a trendy this, a momentary that. I mean, Earth Day was once so prominent, and now, let's see, when was it, and what happened, and not much. And I think we have to reintroduce the simple basics, and we have to focus on a biblical phrase such as the seed, zera, and look at the ways in which it's used literally and figuratively. And hey, let's let's take advantage of our Greek heritage. The mysteries of Eleusis, those are really the mysteries of uh, the seed, the grain. I mean, uh, here is life just as the previous cycle of life perishes. And now its burial results in resurrection and new life. I mean, 
let's recapture some of that wonder. Um, we, we still can't eat virtual reality. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Meanwhile, the, um, to err on the side of caution and to reduce profligate energy waste that that will surely be a safeguard against a further deterioration of the environment will preserve some of these resources for maybe a much needed future time and gives us the chance to harness effectively the sun yeah and um, I mean our neglect of that listen Jimmy Carter Oh, the last president I had, Jimmy Carter, look, he, back in the 70s, was set up regional solar energy centers. That was part of what prompted our temple to convert its solar power to eternal light in 1978 Wow! to solar panels. And we, we had a big ceremony and said, hey guys, look, we're plugging it directly into the sun. I mean, if you want a ner tamid, an eternal light, uh, don't uh, don't depend on diminishing fossil fuels, and don't demand, depend on uh, potentially destructive nuclear. Hey, there's the sun, and the more of it we can harness. I mean, it's just waiting to share its abundance. So I I think. I think everything comes together. We, we help people cultivate sensibility toward the basic stuff of life, the seed and the seed bed. And at the same time, we notice just how desperately important it is that we preserve some of this diminishing amount of immediately available concentrated energy from millions of years of fossil accumulation and compression, preserve it, there could be some emergency periods, and use all of this to, to look afresh at possibilities of harvesting the divine abundance which simply showers over us, uh, and so much of it, I. Yeah, we miss. Don't one, notice. One one experience I had. Please. I was I participated in the Green Faith Fellowship Program. Oh, and wonderful! There, <clears throat> there are three pillars of Green Faith in which we explore the connection of the environment to our religious being. One one is the spirit, our spiritual connection, like what you've talked about, how how we are innate spiritual beings. There's the second pillar is sustainability. We have to do more to think about how we use energy effectively. And then the third is environmental justice, oh. which, which implies mm-hmm. that the people who suffer the most as a result of environmental degradation happen to be the poor of society, the lower socioeconomic rungs. And this hit home for me when, in Green Faith, we took a tour of the ironbound district of Newark and saw one chemical plant after another, after an incinerator, and, mm. and landfills, and 
all kinds of stuff concentrated into one area, and it, it's unbelievable to, to see something like that and then to realize that people are living right next door. So uh, I, I'm curious, to, to what extent have you, had, have, you, have you found the nexus between your social justice work, such as in the civil rights movement, together with environmental? How have you linked Ooh. those two? Oh, the, I mean, the linkage is powerful and, uh, and really, when, when I think about it, very disturbing. The, um, oh yeah, listen, the, not in my backyard, move the landfill, you know, to that area where they have less political clout, as they say. And, um, yeah, others should be exposed to the hazards, but not not us and our families. But I, I tell you, the um, you you point to something that really is is very shocking. We sometimes think, oh, in this computer age, maybe we're past that uh, the realism of Genesis by the sweat of thy brow. Do do you? earn a living and uh, make the earth produce. And it looks as though, oh, it's all so clean from computers. And then the recent revelations of Apple and its ruthless squeezing of the producers in China so that they pay a pittance to their workers and so on. I mean, we, we see that... Uh, so much is built on a, on a uh, the false foundation of economic exploitation. It's it's crucial. It's essential. I mean, the uh, environmental is, environmentalism is not elitist, and uh, it, it must never permit itself to be associated simply with um, um, pleasant parks for uh, the well-off. It really, it really has to do with the basic living conditions for all of us. And you're pointing to Newark and uh, you know tragedies of that kind. Very much to the point. Listen. Uh, Look at the at the feed lots, and look at the um, the results of of massive hog farming out in the Middle West, and uh, you know the clean air with the stench and the runoff, and then I mean dead areas in the Gulf of Mexico from Mississippi River runoff of once productive soil, you know, all of these are uh, both environmental and deep economic issues. I mean, the, the false economies of mass factory food production, I mean, let's just have honest cost accounting and let's build in. Uh, environmental costs and pollution and people's suffering and increased illness. Let's add that up and then we'll compare supermarket stuff 
and decently produced organic. Mm -hmm. And uh, right, yeah. Uh, Michael Pollan, who writes oh. about he 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 wrote one of the statistics he cites is that it takes ten calories of petroleum energy to produce one calorie of meat energy mm -hmm. in the standard meat industry. Yeah. And that that's that that seems unsustainable to me. It is unsustainable. We can't. Right. We can't. Yeah. And listen, I'm, you know, we're not we're not smart enough to do it on our own, but um, diminishing petroleum supplies and increasing political unrest and costs, and pretty soon it won't seem so economical to uh, grow soybeans here and ship them over to China and there they now distort their own diets feeding them to their hogs and uh, now they eat and then probably ship that back to us and that, that's going to come to an end and it will we'll preserve precious petroleum supplies for the future if we call it off now oh no the locality the place where we live has got to come to the fore again and whether uh, whether an iPad in every palm will help I don't know so are you optimistic that things will get better what what uh, what <laughs> motivates you to keep going oh and, and listen I mean I, I, I just uh, in, in our, uh, I, I'd like to think of them as ripening middle years, but I have to confess, my, I'm a little beyond that. But every, every, every day is so precious, so beautiful. Um, I guess I, I keep at it simply because I love it, and maybe I don't dedicate quite so much energy to the kind of political activism that I was formerly engaged in, though I'm not inactive or in absentia, but um, listen, I, I still help a lot of food grow, and uh, what I notice is uh, the, the arthritis and uh, somewhat diminished energy, my, uh, my pace is slower, so there's not quite as much to go around but uh, it's, it's probably just that uh, creation, <laughs> it's so enticing, who, um, while still <laughs> living and breathing, can uh, cease and desist. Well, Rabbi Everett Gendler, it's really been a treat to be in conversation with you. About and listen, thank you, and I so admire your environmental concern and fellowship and your podcasts it's really that's part of what keeps me going great great well to be continued amen <laughs>